Good afternoon, everyone. Librarian Danielle Belanger here from the Côte saint Public Library, joining you virtually. Today, we have another great program for you. The library is thrilled to have the opportunity to host a live conversation with Caroline Bishop. Thank you very much, Caroline, for taking the time to speak with me today all the way from Switzerland, and to Natasha at Simon & Schuster for making this event possible. Thanks also to Andreas at Paragraph Bookstore for collaborating with us on this event. If you want to find out how you can purchase your own copy of the book through Paragraph Bookstore, you can contact the librarian afterwards and we'll let you know. Otherwise, you can put your name down for the book at the library. It is probably on a wait list, but you'll just have to wait your turn. So to begin, I will share a condensed bio. Caroline Bishop is a journalist, an editor, and the author of two novels, The Other Daughter and The Lost Chapter. For the past 15 years, she has written about travel, food, and theater for many publications, including The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Independent, and BBC Travel. A British-Canadian, she currently lives in Switzerland. Visit her at carolinebishop.co.uk or connect with her on Twitter at Cal Bish, that's C-A-L-B-I-S-H. Before we discuss your second novel, The Other Daughter, or in North America, your second novel, let's speak about your bio. Caroline, how has working in journalism and as an editor helped you in novel writing? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I think particularly with this book, The Other Daughter, uh, it really did help me because um, when I first moved to Switzerland, I started working for an English language uh, Swiss news site out here. And that really helped me get under the skin of the country. And I was learning a lot about Switzerland's history and politics and culture, finding out all sorts of things I didn't know before. Um, and it was through that that I really became interested in um, the women's rights situation in Switzerland um, and also some of the other themes that appear in my novel. So that really gave me the starting point and um i think yes because i'd sort of had that journalistic training I, I suppose it piqued my curiosity and then i went on to find out more independently about about these issues and and decided i wanted to uh, write about these in the book perfect thank you and can you tell us about some of your favorite assignments when writing about food and travel <laughs> um i think what i love most is um uncovering sort of unusual uh, aspects of Switzerland and um, since I've been I've been living here for 10 years now and I've really made Switzerland my speciality so uh, for example I've been to visit a Scottish festival in Switzerland um, I went to try out this sort of wooden bike sledge that's very typical of a certain area in Switzerland um, what else I went to walk the um, a trail that crosses from France to Switzerland which is where absinthe was produced mm. um, so all these sort of yeah a lot of quirky things that perhaps people wouldn't wouldn't necessarily know about. Um, I really like that, that kind of discovering those kind of things. Yeah. So sort of off the beaten path. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Congratulations, Caroline, on such an insightful and compelling novel. I'm referring, of course, to The Other Daughter, which I'm holding here right now. Uh, a big thank you once again to Simon and & Schuster and Natasha for sending me an advanced reader's copy of the book. So for those listening in, I will share a synopsis of the plot. Um, 2016, Jess is at a crossroads in life. In her late 30s, all she has to show for it is a broken marriage and a job teaching a bunch of uninteresting kids. 
But when she discovers a shocking secret about her late mother, Sylvia, Jess begins to question all she's ever known. Her search for answers leads to a 1970s article about women's rights in Switzerland that Sylvia wrote when she was a young journalist. But to uncover the real story of what happened all those years ago, Jess will have to go to Switzerland and find someone who knew her mother. 1976. Sylvia's life is on track. She has a loving fiance and her dream job as a features writer in a busy London newsroom. If only her editor would give her the chance to write about something important instead of relegating her to fashion, flowers, and celebrities. When Sylvia learns about the growing women's liberation movement in Switzerland, where women only recently got the right to vote, she knows the story could be her big break. There's just one wrinkle, she's pregnant. Determined to put her career first, Sylvia travels to Switzerland as she meets the courageous band of women fighting for their rights, she stumbles across an even bigger scoop, one that will, would make her male colleagues take her seriously. But telling the story will change her and her baby's life forever. Inspired by an important chapter of women's history, The Other Daughter is an unforgettable novel about the bond between mothers and daughters and the fight of women generations over for the freedom to choose their own path. Caroline, do you mind sharing what inspired you to write this eye-opening and very moving novel? Um, yeah, well, um, I think it was a number of things that sort of came together in my head. Um, <clears throat> the initial sort of premise, um, I think really was inspired by um, my own background in that I am I was brought up in Britain, uh, but my mum's Canadian and my, my dad's British. Um, and I felt growing up that I could easily have been brought up in Canada if my parents had made a different choice to, to settle there instead of the UK. Um, and I often wondered how I would be if I'd been brought up in Canada. I'd, I'd have a different accent and I'd have different friends and different cultural experiences. Um, and yet fundamentally, I'd still be the same person. Um, and I've always sort of been interested in that idea, I suppose, the sliding doors idea of, you know, how, how different someone's life could be if, if a different decision was made. Um, so I was really interested in that sort of concept for quite a long time. And then after I moved to Switzerland, and as I said, I was working for this, this Swiss website and learning an awful lot about um, Switzerland's history and culture. And um, I think I knew before I moved to Switzerland that women got the vote at national level in 1971 in Switzerland, which seemed crazy late. Um, but it was only really once I lived here that that sort of really sunk in. And I thought, wow, that's so late. How would I have felt to, to live here and, and not be able to vote? Although I can't actually vote here because I'm here on the property, I know something of that. <laughs> um, but so that sort of piqued my interest and I started looking more into uh, women's rights here and realized that, that so that was the vote. But then after that, there was still a lot of other um, rights that came very late, things like um, access to abortion and maternity leave um, and uh, equality under the law, um, sexual discrimination laws, things like that, all came quite late. Um, and I was just really interested in it. And this was around 2017, um, 16, 17, when President Trump came, came in in the States and there were all the women's marches around the world. And there was one in Geneva, which I went on. And it just felt like um, women's rights was an issue that was so pertinent still. And despite the fact that so much progress has been made, it, it feels like there's still more to do mm. and still that perhaps this is quite tenuous and things could change um, and so this all sort of came together in my head and I decided that I wanted to write about this theme in my novel. 
And can you tell us how you went about conducting your research for this novel and how you decided what would be based on actual facts and what wouldn't be? Yeah, that was really hard. I think, um, you know, as a, as a journalist, I did an awful lot of research for this novel. And I think as a journalist, some, sometimes I was, you know, felt a bit tied to facts, but at the same time, it's fiction. And I, I didn't want my characters to be real. I want, they're loosely inspired by people I've read about, but they're not, they're not real, they're fictional. Um, so that was kind of a balancing act and as a first time novelist as well, because this was my first um, first novel in the UK. Um, so that was a tricky balancing act, I think. Um, I read an awful lot. I went to libraries around here. Um, I spoke to some experts on the subject. Um, uh, yeah, so it was about balancing those the facts that I discovered with a fictional story and making sure it was a good, you know, a good strong plot and, and good characters that you could um, root for and, and relate to. Um, and Switzerland's a very complicated country. So looking into the, the laws and, and everything that happened was actually quite a difficult task <laughs> because um, Switzerland has a cantonal system and there's sort of three layers of government. So while some things happen at national level, a lot of things happen at, at cantonal level, which mm -hmm. is sort of like the province. Um, and so just saying a blanket thing like women got the vote in 71 is not entirely the whole picture mm -hmm. because a lot of the cantons gave women the vote at, at different times. So it was really quite complicated and, and trying to um, get a sense of this over to the reader, but also not bog people down in dry, <laughs> dry facts was um, quite challenging at times. <laughs> <laughs> So your novel made me want to do a little digging of my own on Canada's suffragette movement and discovered Quebec, um, our province, was the last Canadian province to grant women the right to vote in federal elections. In Quebec, it was in 1940, despite many other Canadian provinces having granted this right from 1916 to 1926. So the order uh, for Canada, for those who are interested, um, was Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta in 1916, British Columbia and Ontario 1917, Nova Scotia 1918, New Brunswick 1919, Prince Edward Island 1922, Newfoundland 1925, and Quebec 1940. Aboriginal women, uh, were the only group to acquire these rights after Quebec. This happened in 1960. Uh, so did you end up looking at the women's suffrage, uh, suffrage, I don't know, I have trouble with this word, <laughs> movement across the world when preparing for this novel? Because I did read that New Zealand was the first. Yes, we did. <laughs> yeah, I think New Zealand was something like 1896, <laughs> but it was end of, yeah, end of the 19th century. Um, Yes, I found that really interesting. And actually, although Switzerland was so late, the, the sort of campaigning started way back then. So it was a really long fight. There were people, I think there was um, an organ, women's organization in Zurich that started campaigning perhaps even earlier than that, like a long, a long time ago. Um, so it was a long old fight. But um, yeah, it was really interesting. And um, I think I mentioned in the book that Liechtenstein, which is a principality, yes. obviously very close to Switzerland, I think there's only about I might be wrong here, but it's very few people who live there, maybe 30,000 or something. I might be wrong about that. Um, was even later, I think they were something like 1985. Um, so yeah, it's just, yeah, I find it really shocking. And there was one canton in Switzerland that held out giving women uh, local voting rights until 1991. 
uh, which is crazy to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was crazy. Um, and I was also surprised uh, that, you know, maternity kind of laws and packages, the way we know them now, Quebec is known for, for having a great uh, maternity maternity leave right now in Canada, uh, but that only happened in Canada in the 1970s. Uh, that surprised me too. I thought that would have been sooner <laughs> than in the 1970s. I think a lot of things we take for granted and then you look into it and you think, oh, that was actually really weird. <laughs> Uh, so this novel features a dual narrative between Jess and Sylvia, allowing the reader to explore both the past and its effects on the current time. How did you go about exploring this style? And did you enjoy it? Because it is enjoyable to read. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad about that. <laughs> um, I mean, like I said, this was my debut novel, so I, I didn't massively know what I was doing. <laughs> it was very much a question of figuring it out as I went along. Um, I like, I enjoy dual narrative novels. Um, so I guess that was in my head that this would be an interesting way to explore it. Um, and I think also, although there is the historical element, um, I really wanted to contrast that with the present day and to, not just to contrast, but to compare and to sort of show how, although things have changed, it still feels like there's quite a lot to do. Um, and so it felt like a good way to express that, to, to um, yeah, to show how far we've come and perhaps some things that we still should be fighting for. <laughs> yes. Your novel has been described as timely, perhaps because we're still fighting for equal pay, for equal work across the globe today. Is there anything that you found surprising when researching this novel? Um, so I was surprised when you did say Switzerland only uh, gave the right to women to vote uh, federally in 1971. However, I know there was the the hold off in one of the at least one of the cantons. <laughs> so, was yeah. there anything else that that surprised you there? I mean, all all of it really. Um, <laughs> you know how late things like maternity leave came. Um, I think it, um, I forget the exact date, but it was in the early noughties. I think 2002 or something like that. Um, yeah, I just I wouldn't have expected that. I think, particularly of Switzerland, because living here now, it seems quite a progressive country. There are um, there've been several women presidents, so the system's quite a bit different here. But there have been several women presidents, and um, there's quite a lot of women in parliament, and it feels like quite a progressive country to live here. And so all of that was quite a big surprise. Um, I think as well, going back to the vote issue. Um, Switzerland has quite an interesting political system in that um, it's uh, direct democracy. So um, a lot of issues are voted for by the public. They have referendum here four times a year. And so women, um, part of the reason why it took so long to give women the vote is that it had to be voted for by the general public, who of course were all men. <laughs> so they had a previous vote actually in um, the 1950s um, where men were asked, should women be able to vote? And they said, no. Yeah. Um, so that was just a really interesting to me, um, the reasons behind why it took so long. Um, and basically in the end, I think the federal government had to sort of force their hand and yes. <laughs> advise that it would be correct to uh, to say yes this time. <laughs> I, I remember coming across that information and just shaking my head. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And I've seen, I came across some sort of old footage from the fifties um, where men at the time were interviewed um, as to how they were going to vote and and you know this this very sort of 
smart looking man saying oh no I, no of course I'm not going to vote yes I think women should be in the home and it just it just seems kind of shocking to me that I, I know it was a long time ago but it sort of also wasn't and it feels really shocking that those were the attitudes but um it was quite a conservative country Switzerland and in some ways it still is um and so I think it yeah it took a long time to change attitudes in terms of the characters in your novel which did you enjoy writing the most um, I, I'm not sure if I had a preference. Um, <laughs> I like the variety of being able to write the, the two main characters. I suppose Sylvia in a way, because her journey was, um, for me, I suppose that involved the most research and it was it, it obviously being set in the past. Um, yeah, that took quite a bit of work and it was quite challenging, but I did enjoy finding out about um, everything I wrote about. So that was really interesting, but I think, um, Jess's story as well uh, that was quite important to me because I think it's sort of representative of of how women can feel today and the issues mm -hmm. that we still face so um, yeah sorry that's not a very straight <laughs> answer but okay. I don't think I had a real preference <laughs> <laughs> and when writing Jess did you draw upon, upon your own experiences or that of friends or was her character entirely fictional I mean, she is entirely fictional, but of course, I think you draw on your own experiences to, to an extent. And um, I think, yeah, I think that age, sort of late 30s, is quite a tricky time for women. And um, I, yeah, drew on my own feelings about that, about, you know, the big questions about motherhood and family and trying to juggle kids with career and all that kind of thing. Um, so I drew on my own feelings about that, but also friends and observing how they were dealing with it and the different choices that people make and um, and the difficulties that still exist when, you know, I think people my age have been brought up to feel like you can have it all. And then you sort of get to the age when you realize hmm, maybe that's not quite true. So I sort of wanted to express um, the, the various different feelings surrounding that subject. I appreciated how you handled Sylvia's character in this novel and the fact that she continually makes difficult choices at different stages in her life, while at the same time trying to weigh each decision very carefully and not just go with her gut feelings, because we do get a good sense of how she feels about things, but it doesn't mean that she acts <laughs> upon them in that way. Uh, so again, was she inspired by someone you came across in history? or more of a, a mix no, of different Yeah, I think, um, here she is far by, I think um, I was working as a journalist, you know, at the time and previous, previous to writing this. So, um, and I was quite passionate about it, I suppose. And so I think perhaps her, her sort of drive and passion came from, from that, from um, my own feelings about wanting to be successful in a, in a career. Um, and then transposing that to the 1970s background where there were more obstacles than there are today. Um, yeah, I think that that made it interesting to write, but she wasn't based on anyone real. No. <laughs> and the way you describe the office politics in London's journalism industry in 1976 is very immersive. How did you achieve this feat? <laughs> um, I read a lot so I read a really okay. interesting book about specifically about women in Fleet Street which was um, really fascinating 
Um, so yeah, I just read um, biographies of women journalists at the time, um, just to get a sense of the issues they faced and, uh, and a lot of stuff online as well, interviews with them, um, because there were a lot of um, female journalists who did very well back then, but it was it felt to me like it was a fight in <laughs> various different ways. Um, and so that's what I wanted to portray, not, not that they couldn't be in those jobs, but that you know, there were quite a lot of obstacles facing um, women back then. Even other women sometimes, as in Sylvia's case. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's one thing that struck me. I think I was listening to a radio show um, where a, a female journalist was interviewed and she was an older lady who'd, who'd been around in the 70s, working in the 70s. And she said that you would think there would have been a real sort of bond between the very few women journalists that there were, but actually it was more of a cat fight and <laughs> every woman for herself. <laughs> so I, I definitely wanted to feed that in. <laughs> the chapters that feature Jess enjoying all that Switzerland has to offer while working as a live-in tutor slash nanny are so beautifully descriptive. They made me want to visit Switzerland, of course, as soon as possible. Can you tell us a little bit about how you approach this aspect of the novel, sort of giving us little pockets and insights of festivals in this area and that area? <laughs> I suppose that was the easiest part for me to write because, you know, I live here and um, I feel like Jess arrives in Switzerland as a, as a British woman coming here and completely new and hasn't been here before. Um, and I suppose that very much was fed from my own experiences. Um, and you know, I've learned to ski since I've been here and I go hiking now, which I never really did in the UK. And um, I go and visit all these quirky festivals. Um, I've been to the Montreux Jazz Festival. So I think all these things sort of fed in and yeah, that was probably the most straightforward part. part I could just step outside my door and then look at the lake and try and describe it. <laughs> That's very nice. Uh, the relationship between Jess and Julia often feels quite tense in the novel and both women seem to both envy and resent aspect of the other. Despite this, the women seem to bond later on in the novel when both women admit to not being as perfect as the other one thought them to be. How did you go about creating this particular storyline within the novel? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, a lot of the book is about obstacles that are that are placed in in women's way by society which is you know ruled by men particularly in the 70s um but I also wanted to show that you know sometimes women can be their own worst enemy and I think often women judge each other um and so I wanted these two characters to initially judge each other for their different choices um Jess desperately wants to be a mother and, and can't be and she looks at Julia, who has two young kids, um, but also works full time and loves her job. And she just feels jealous and also judges Julia for not staying at home with the kids. And then vice versa, you know, Julia has her own issues with with Jess as well. Um, and so I wanted that initially to be in there. But it was really important to me that they don't stay on that path and that eventually <laughs> they they come to understand each other. Um, yeah. That's important to me. And also the character who is Julia's son, um, who sort of gets involved with Jess. I won't say too much about it, but he's an interesting fellow, too, who's kind of a quirky character. Um, how did you come up with weaving him into the story? 
Um, I suppose I wanted there to be a hint of a love interest in there. <laughs> so he came from that. But um, also, I think one thing that um, I have noticed being out in Switzerland, obviously, I'm a foreigner in Switzerland, and there are an awful lot of foreigners here. I think 25% um, of the population um, are, are not uh, citizens. Um, so that, again, was sort of part of Switzerland that I wanted to represent, I suppose. And so this character, Jorge, is a Spanish uh, of Spanish origin who came to Switzerland with his parents when he was um, a teenager. So yeah, I suppose he was just representative of the type of people that I, I meet out here and of that different side to modern Switzerland. And can you tell us a little bit about the Verdinger, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it right, I'm sorry, in Switzerland, which literally means children for hire. Yeah, so that was another um, uh, aspect that came up when I was uh, working as a journalist here, um, and I had never heard of it before, and I was really shocked. Um, and for those who don't know, it's um, in the 20th century for a, for a good many years, for several decades, um, children were taken from families um, and placed in either on farms or in institutions. Um, they were taken from families uh, for reasons that we would not deem acceptable today. Um, it could have been because the family were, were poor uh, or because it was a single mother, divorced or had, um, had a child out of wedlock. Um, and these children were taken from them. Um, and in the early days, it was mainly to put them on farms where they would work. And the idea, I mean, Switzerland was not a rich country back then. And so I think farming in particular was a, a tough life um, and they needed all the labor they could get. So the idea was that these kids would, um, you know, yeah, be child, child laborers on these farms. Um, and not only that, but the, the system of welfare checks was not very robust and many of these children were not checked on by the authorities who'd put them there and ended up being mistreated. Um, so yeah, it, I mean, some more than others, like some of them I think did have a reasonable experience of these placements, but others were, were treated abominably. So, um, and this went on for decades until the early, I think in the early eighties, it was abolished. Um, and then a few years ago, the government apologized and there was a, um, a study into why it happened. Um, so yeah, that has been in the news again since I've been living here and I found it really interesting. Um, again, you wouldn't think a country like Switzerland necessarily that would have happened. So I found it really interesting to look into. Um, and I think in terms of the novel, um, I realized I went to an exhibition about it um, and I realized uh, how it's intertwined with the issue of women's rights because a lot of these children were taken from, from parents, mothers, um, who were not sort of deemed socially acceptable because they were unmarried or divorced or somehow on the fringes of society. Um, and so there was this sort of quite solid link with women's rights. Um, and I thought it would be a really interesting issue to include in the book. I thought I had come across also um, the fact that women couldn't own property for a long time in Switzerland. It was under the name of the husband. I can't remember the year when that changed, but it was surprising to, to see how long it took women to acquire certain rights and in sort of all realms that are important <laughs> to, to yeah. women. I mean, I think, I think if a woman was married and I can't remember the exact date when it changed, but for a long time, they essentially had no rights. It was their husband who had 
who had rights over them. So in terms of whether they could have even have a job or not, um, it was up to the husbands, which I find really, yeah, incredible. Um, there's a brilliant film, actually, if anyone's interested, it's called The Divine Order. And it's about um, the run up to the 1971 vote when women finally were granted the vote. And it's about a group of women um, and their reactions to it. And it's, um, it's fiction, but obviously based on um, facts of the time. And it's a really brilliant film. It's really funny, actually, and just gives you a really good sense of Switzerland at the time and the issues involved. So you did say earlier on in the interview that Switzerland is a very, it's, it seems to us also as a very progressive uh, place to live, but also in all my reading about Switzerland, um, when, when preparing for the interview, I came across a lot of articles saying the attitudes are still um, still kind of need to change where it's very traditional in many people's minds from older generations where the woman is at home and the man works. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us uh, how, how, what, how your experience has been and if you've seen that or if you feel like it's evolving and it keeps evolving in the right direction? I mean, it, it, yeah, it is. It is evolving, of course. But um, I do think that in some ways it's quite a conservative country. I think there's quite a split because you see it in when when the ref they have these referendums uh, every so often, and often if it's a fairly I don't know contentious issue, you see a real split in the voting pattern. So um, often I think the cities are quite progressive. There's probably a a larger proportion of younger people there, um, perhaps more international people as well. So they can be a bit more progressive, but you often see that in the more rural areas, they will be voting a bit more conservatively. Um, and yeah, I mean, I can't speak for individuals, but I think, you know, there probably are still some very traditional families here. Um, and I definitely think, you know, when in the 70s, when um, women finally got the vote, there were some women who didn't want the vote. They also felt like their place was at home and they they had no need for the vote, which <laughs> I find incredible. But, you know, um, yeah, it's just a, a different way of life. I don't think personally I felt like, um, you know, discriminated against in any way or particularly, but um, I know um, um, friends with young children have, have felt like they're still a you know, a bit of a barrier. Um, nurseries are very expensive, so it can be difficult mm -hmm. to, you know, carry on working and, and have your child in a nursery. I mean, that's not an, an issue that's exclusive to Switzerland. I know the yeah. UK is similar on that score. Um, and I think, you know, I've had friends who say that they, you know, feel like their their husbands are sort of perhaps treated a bit better by yes. authorities and authority <laughs> figures and doctors and things like that than women are but I don't have any sort of personal experience of being treated differently. <laughs> I did come across the statistic that um, in Swiss, Swiss households um, if you have a child and you need to put them in daycare you can expect to be spending one third or 30 some 30 something percent of your income on this purpose. So yeah, I did. I did read this as a problem yeah. in Switzerland. No, it can be. It can be a lot. But then you know, I, the UK is similar, to be honest. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think the system needs to change in a lot of places. So in this novel, um, we learn about motherhood through a variety of different lenses. Um, about someone who's not quite ready to be a mom and is not sure that she wants this because she's afraid it will 
uh, stint her career. Then we have another younger woman who um, really doesn't know what she's doing, but is excited about the prospect and sees this kind of as a future hope, but also wants to shelter this child and wants to give her the best opportunity. How did you go about navigating the different views? And then we have, of course, in the current timeline, we have Julia who feels a certain way. And then we have Jess who feels another way. How did you yeah. go about incorporating all of these different views and thoughts on um, motherhood? Yeah, I guess I just wanted to, I really wanted to portray all those different aspects um, of it because I think it, you know, is a big question that all women sort of have to grapple with at some point in their lives. And um, I wanted to show that there's no one way, you know, that, that you can make different choices, but obviously um, different experiences come with those choices. Um, and yeah, lots of lots of issues to think about surrounding it. So um, I think some of them, like the having Jess and Sylvia and Julia, those those were sort of narratives that I planned. But I think some others just cropped up in there that I perhaps hadn't <laughs> intended. So, for example, Maggie, who is um, <clears throat> Sylvia's best friend, who ends up not having children, is you know quite content with that. That that sort of I think just grew organically. Um, and yes, also um, Anna, the young girl who who is pregnant um, and her sort of hope. Um, I don't think that was something that was planned, but it, yeah, just came came organically and sort of seemed to work really well with the other narratives. Okay, Caroline, thank you so much for speaking me to, uh, with me today. Um, I believe, I do have a few more questions, but I would like to open it up to the audience to allow others to ask you questions as well. So for anyone listening in, uh, feel free to put your question in the chat or in the Q&A and we will pass it along to Caroline. So in the meantime, I will ask you a few more because I've always got questions. Um, can you share with us what is, if anything, your writing routine? Uh, my writing routine? Well, I think on an ideal day, um, I will get up, I'm not particularly an early riser, but I'll probably be at my desk at, at nine-ish with a big cup of tea and I'll try and write um, till lunchtime, so <clears throat> three or four hours. Um, and I find that when I'm writing a book, I can't do more than that. That's sort of enough for the day. Um, and usually, because I'm a freelance journalist still as well, so or copy, copywriting as well, so usually I'll spend the afternoon doing that. Um, but I, I like to save the mornings for book writing if I can, because mm -hmm. that's my the time when I'm most alert. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I'll, I'll do that. But um, I mean, I'm fairly used to being flexible, so I don't have a particularly, a particularly set routine. Um, but that would be my ideal. Yes. <laughs> and how do you go about setting the mood before you put it into words? Are there um, techniques you use, like some people sort of draw, have storyboards, some people pin up sort of almost like a vision board of what each timeline looks like? Um, I don't really do any of that. Um, I do tend to just keep a Word document with it with um, a vague plan, <laughs> but it can be quite vague. I sort of plan as I'm going along. I'm not very good at planning the whole story <clears throat> at the beginning, so I'll usually write a bit and then maybe plan a few chapters out and then write a bit more. Um, but I find, yeah, I'm not one for sort of post-its or spreadsheets really, but I find the the most useful thing is just giving yourself time to think. Um, 
and again like I say I would only really write sort of three hours or so in the day and then if I have time and I'm not doing anything else just going out for a walk in the afternoon <clears throat> or a swim or something like that I find is actually just as important as sitting at your laptop because it really gets the ideas going so if ever I'm a bit stuck on something then if I go for a walk or a swim then hopefully by the end of that I've got the answer to my question not always but sometimes <laughs> and you said you're not usually very good at the beginning and I was going to ask you for this novel did you start by the beginning did you start by the end or you really took it kind of one piece at a time um, I always write chrono chronologically, so I wrote, I didn't write one timeline and then the other, I wrote, wrote both together, chapter by chapter. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's how other people would do it, but I find that's um, the best way to get the story really integrated, because you don't want them to be two separate storylines, you really want it to be integrated, so that's what I found um, works the best. But I think it's also that because I'm not very good at planning, I really just am discovering the story as I write it. Um, so I couldn't jump ahead because I don't know what's going to happen yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I see something has popped up in the Q&A uh, from Maria. As a travel writer, if you were to choose somewhere to go and write about um, at, right now, uh, where would it be? I could choose somewhere to go and write about it. Um, gosh, so many places. Um, I have at the moment a, a yearning to go to... Eastern Europe, we've, um, my partner and I have talked about doing a, a road trip. Um, so I'd love to go to the Czech Republic and Slovakia and I've been to Slovenia before, but um, yeah, heading in that direction, Romania, Albania, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. And uh, a question I always like to ask authors is, because sometimes I found, find the answer shocking, is how long did you spend yourself on editing the novel? Oh, I mean, the majority of the time. I find, um, I find for me, uh, the, the first draft is the hardest bit. And I really, I can really struggle and find it a real slog to get through that first draft. But I actually love editing. So once I've got a first draft, I mean, I might do eight, nine drafts after that. But I don't mind that. I quite enjoy it because I feel that's when you're really crafting the story. Um, the first draft for me is really hard work <laughs> okay and how long would you say it took you beginning to end with all the drafts and all the edits to complete this Gosh. beautiful novel um, well that, a long time but partly because it was my first as well so I think I started writing that in 2016 and um I got my publishing deal in the UK in 2019, um, but then the pandemic hit, so it was delayed a bit to come out in 2020, and it came out in 21 in the end, and then um, obviously now in Canada. Um, but so they were obviously the writing of it, and then all my various drafts, and then when you get a publishing deal, you, well, first of all, I had edits with my agent, and then you get your publishing deal, and you have more edits with your editor, so... Yeah, there's an awful lot. I think I lost count of how many drafts in the end. It took, it took quite a long time. <laughs> okay, it seems like that's all the questions I have and our audience has for you today. Caroline, thank you again so much for joining us. And I know that everyone who reads it will love this book as well. The Other Daughter, don't forget to put your name down for it. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Caroline. Yeah, thank everyone. you. Have a good Bye. rest of your day. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.